This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radius, A Story of Feminist Revolution by Yasmin El-Rafai. In 2012, the hopes of the democratic Egyptian revolution were tempered by revelations of mass sexual assault in Tahrir Square in Cairo. This is the story of the women and men who formed Opantish, Operation Anti-Sexual Harassment, who deployed hundreds of volunteers to intervene in the spiraling cases of sexual violence against women protesters in the square. Journalist Yasmin El-Rafai was one of Opantish's organizers, and this is her evocative, aching account of their work as they raced to develop new tactics, struggled with a revolution bleeding into counter-revolution, and dealt with the long aftermath of assault and devastation. Introducing a powerful new voice, a writer whose searchingly beautiful, spare prose cuts to the core of a story ever more urgent and relevant, of women's resistance when all else has failed. Radius, A Story of Feminist Revolution, by Yasmin El-Rafai, out now from Verso Books, and available at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is part one of a two-part series on monetary politics with historian Tim Barker. I first interviewed Tim about the politics of inflation what feels like ages ago, all the way back in July 2021. Okay, not that long ago, but much has changed in the year and a half since we first talked. At the time, a prevailing judgment was that the Federal Reserve had become dovish on inflation, and so loath to raise interest rates to combat it. Tim argued that this assessment was premature. The Fed had hoped that inflation would be transitory. In part, that's because they didn't believe that workers were powerful enough to bargain up wages. The Fed, Tim argued, remained as committed as they had always been to keeping workers' wages and, more broadly, the labor share of national income, down. Today, the Fed has been raising interest rates, by no means to historically high rates, but indeed at a historically fast clip. And even as wages in general remain stagnant, they are laser-focused on checking wage growth among service workers, among the lowest wage workers in the United States. In this interview, we cover some of the basics of what's going on with inflation and the various supply and demand side accounts of why it's happening, and more. In part two of our interview, we will discuss many other topics, including whether the Fed's previously expansionary monetary policy had contributed to asset price inflation and to the concentration of wealth among the super-rich, and then what industrial undercapacity means for Marxist arguments that capitalism suffers from chronic overcapacity, and also the calamitous impacts of rising interest rates on heavily indebted countries in the global south. Both of these interviews are really remarkable and extensive conversations, and I hope they prove useful to helping you sharpen your own understanding of what the hell is going on right now. 
If you want a more expansive primer on the basics of inflation and the history of monetary policy in the United States, I suggest that you listen to my first 2021 interview with Tim. I will post a link to that in the show notes. Before we get rolling, I know you're probably done with your Christmas and other holiday shopping, but please don't forget to put the dig on your shopping list by making a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. The dig is fundamentally a political education project. Our goal is to provide all of you people out there doing so much incredible organizing work with ruthless analyses of everything in the world in order to help you in your work to change it, including by liberating so much incredible knowledge that's produced within academia that otherwise typically doesn't make it out of academia. That's why every episode of The Dig is freely available to all, everyone, with no paywall. We want everyone to listen regardless of your ability to pay. That means that we rely on those of you listeners who can afford to contribute to do so. What's more, If you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. And I will put a link in the show notes. And what's more, we have an excellent weekly newsletter along with our vast archives. They are all available for free at thedigradio.com. But trust me, you want our excellent weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. And the way to get that newsletter delivered to your email inbox is to support us with a contribution of any amount at all at patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Tim Barker, who completed a PhD on the history of military Keynesianism in May 2022. He is currently working as a writer and researcher in New York. His essays and articles have appeared in publications including N Plus One, Phenomenal World, Descent, and Jacobin. Tim Barker, welcome back to The Dig. Hi, Dan. It's great to be here again. Let's start with a very basic question. What is inflation? Not right now in particular. We'll get to that in a lot of detail soon. But rather, what is inflation in general terms? And what historically are the various accounts of what causes it? Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting question and maybe more complicated than it seems at first. Inflation, in the most general sense, is a sustained rise in the price level, Uh, so not a rise in a a single price or even a change in the relative prices of two goods, but something that is occurring uh, across a reasonably wide swath of the economy. But in in reality, what inflation is, is a, a price index that the government, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis or other sort of government bodies defines. And the reason that that's what it really is when we talk about it is because to talk about the price level across the whole economy, you have to kind of abstract from a lot of, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of different particular prices in order to say that there's an inflation rate of, you know, 5% or 7%. How do you do that? You do that by sort of picking a basket of goods and services, which are supposed to be representative of what people spend money on, right? And then you weight those things because some of them are more important in a budget than others. And the result is a a price index, like the consumer price index. And then the rate of change of that price index is inflation. 
And the reason I sort of am framing it this way, where, you know, what inflation is, is the price index, is a lot of people, I think, sort of reify it and, you know, act like there's something out there beyond the price index, uh, which is reality. So they'll say, well, you know, measured inflation is raising, is rising by this much, but there are some special factors in there. And if we take them out, you know, it's really only rising by this much. But once you sort of start taking out the special factors, you're just creating a new different price index. And it's not really clear like what should count as a special factor or not. So I think in some ways, the best way to think about what inflation is, is just a change in this price index. And, you know, you can look beneath the hood of what's in the price index and ask questions about it. Maybe that explanation is a little bit too general. So I'll just give you an example. Um, a major component of the consumer price index, which is one of the big indices we use in the United States, is shelter costs, right, which is supposed to reflect housing, which is obviously a really important part of anyone's budget. But a major part of the shelter component is something called owner-equivalent um, rent, or OER, which is a price paid by no one in reality. It's an imputed cost that represents the cost a homeowner would pay to him or herself if they were renting their own home instead of owning it. And this is like a significant part of the index, but it's not a cost that's actually paid by anyone. It's an attempt to sort of represent this thing that isn't actually a market transaction or not a market transaction of that kind. By contrast, mortgage payments, you know, which are a real thing that everyone who owns a home, you know, deals with, the mortgage rate itself isn't part of the price index. So that's, you know, just a way of saying that once you look beneath the hood of these indexes, you'll see that the, you know, there were choices that were made about what to include in the index that could have been made differently. And then what are the what what are the various before we get into all of the accounts of present day inflation, what are the conventional theories of what causes inflation? Right. So, you know, the sort of textbook, you know, way of thinking about it that many people will have run into is that inflation is a case of uh, too much money chasing not enough goods. Right. And that's a kind of that explanation actually has both demand and supply elements to it, because it's too much money, which is a way of talking about demand, and not enough goods is a way of talking about a supply that's limited in some way or not growing as fast as the spending is. And so within that sort of cliche way people have of talking about it, you can focus more on you know demand side or supply side issues. Within demand side, there's a school of thought called monetarism, you know, which was associated with figures like Milton Friedman. And they really emphasized the money supply above all else. You know, they thought that if the government could just control the money supply at a steady rate, you would have no problems with inflation, that there were no kind of non-monetary causes of inflation. But there's another kind of demand-focused view, which could be more Keynesian, which says that it's not really the money supply per se, but it's spending that causes inflation. And so you could actually increase the money supply, but if that money isn't being spent, you could have a huge increase in the money supply without a huge increase in inflation. And arguably, we saw an example of this for most of the decade of the 2010s, you know, before 2020, when by any measure, the money supply was increasing a lot because of uh, low interest rates and quantitative easing, but inflation was stable uh, and the Fed even had trouble meeting its own inflation targets. Uh, so those are sort of, you know, that, that sort of money view and the spending view are two demand-focused uh, ways of thinking about it. Then there's a view um, which focuses less on the demand side and more on the constriction of supply. The idea that rising prices are caused by shortages or bottlenecks or other ways in which the supply of something 
is limited. And so a classic example of this in the current inflation is the semiconductor shortage, which a lot of people have probably read about, right? That the price of cars, new cars, and even used cars was rising a lot because the production of new cars was constrained because the production of semiconductors, which are needed for the car, uh, was constrained. And so there's an argument there that it's not really a sort of aggregate excess of demand, you know, either of money or of spending that's behind the rise in motor vehicle prices, which in turn was responsible for a big part of the rise in the price index uh, in the early part of the current inflation, uh, but rather it's this limitation of supply. And so the way, you know, that sort of implies a policy prescription where you would want to expand the supply instead of limiting the demand because it's really concentrated in certain sectors rather than representing some kind of generalized excess of demand. And then there's at least one other analysis of inflation put forward by the Marxist economist Mikhail Kolesky. What did he argue? Uh, Kolesky, I think, interpreted inflation as a, a distributional struggle over the surplus that society produces. Uh, and so you can see inflation as a sort of fight over, you know, workers have wages, which represent their sort of money claim to goods and services, and capitalists have profits, which represent both, you know, the income that capitalists use to consume and the fund out of which capitalists uh, would invest in order to, you know, make more profits. And, you know, both wages and profits represent sort of monetary claims on the things that the economy actually produces. And so when you have capitalists and workers kind of engaged in tests of strength to increase their wages or profits, respectively, that could lead to money claims in excess of the goods and services that were available at a current level of prices, which would lead prices to increase because of that. And then you can imagine a spiral where uh, the inflation leads workers and capitalists to try uh, to defend the real value of their wages and profits against the inflation. And then there's a sort of, you know, cumulative process in which they're both chasing rising prices and contributing in some way to that spiral. So that's a sort of long way of saying uh, Kolesky had a view in which uh, you can see inflation as a kind of semi-disguised expression of a distributional conflict. And I should say that the Kletsky view can be maybe synthesized with the other views because you can imagine, you know, you can imagine an inflation starting for different reasons, right? Whether demand or supply. But once it's underway, then, dif- you know, different groups in the society like capitalists and workers can engage in a fight to see who bears the cost of adjusting to that rise in prices wherever it happens to come from. Let's turn to where we were the last time we spoke in July 2021. You you argued then that the Fed was at the time being misperceived as dovish on inflation only because the Fed at the time saw the power of labor to be historically weak, which meant which meant that they were confident that a tight labor market would not pose this risk of putting upward pressure on wages and thus pushing up inflation. Your basic argument, in other words, was that very little had seemingly changed in the Fed orthodoxy and that the Fed was still just as opposed as ever to allowing labor's share of the national income to grow. What had changed was not the Fed's thinking, but organized labor, which we all know since the 1970s had become much, much less powerful. And the Fed liked it that way. Looking back to July 2021, did it turn out that you were right? I do feel like uh, I was right to be measured in my assessment of what was new about the Fed. I hate to beat up on it because uh, I think the author of this piece is a really brilliant economist who I've you know learned a lot from reading. But uh, I remember the blog of the New Left Review ran a piece by uh, Cedric Duran 
called 1979 in reverse, uh, with 1979 referring to the year that Fed Chairman Paul Volcker initiated his famous Volcker shock, which was a sharp increase in interest rates, uh, which had the effect of increasing unemployment and ultimately uh, doing a lot of damage to organized labor, which was an, you know, an intention, an explicit intention on Volcker's part. And so this piece was arguing that now uh, with the sort of expansionary politics of Bidenomics and the seeming dovish turn at the Fed, we were seeing something like 1979 in reverse. And I think that argument was clearly overstated. Um, We were seeing something more like Volcker having been so successful that people could finally afford to be less hawkish than Volcker, which is, you know, in a way, then you can talk about a sort of long cycle from 1979 to 2020, but it's not something running in reverse. And I think that this was borne out basically in the last six months, maybe a little more, as the Fed pivoted to actually increase uh, interest rates to a level which it's important to be clear about this. Interest rates now uh, are not at an especially high level historically, and certainly not compared to the Volcker shock, but the rate at which they've increased is pretty unusual. So there's been a very, very sharp tightening and a sharp turn in direction. And as that's happened, Fed Chair Jerome Powell and other governors of the Federal Reserve Board have been very clear uh, that their target is the strong labor market, right? You know, uh, Powell says these things, which a Marxist would feel embarrassed to come up with, you know, they would feel like they were attributing some kind of conspiratorial mindset to the things that Powell just says at his press conferences, which is that there's an imbalance in bargaining power between, you know, people seeking workers uh, and job seekers. And the Fed is going to raise interest rates until that imbalance is addressed and we get wages down. Right. Those are just like the words that he uses. <laughs> it's very clearly the way in which the Im- boss employee relationship is imbalanced at the moment. <laughs> right. And I mean, if you know, if you want to be absolutely scrupulous about being fair to Powell, he would also say something like inflation is bad for everyone. So we have to, you know, weaken workers for their own good. Right. He would add something like that. He'd say that, you know, stable wage growth can only happen Uh, within a context of price stability. What exactly is going on with wages over the past couple years and right now? You you noted when we spoke ahead of the interview that the Fed seems particularly concerned with tamping down prices in, quote, services other than housing. That, of course, being a sector that employs some of the lowest of the lowest wage workers of all. Why is the Fed so specifically concerned with service worker wages going up? And what does that reveal about prevailing monetary politics? Yeah, so let's start with, um, you know, the first part of your question, which is what's been going on with wages kind of in a longer perspective, right? And the short answer is that, you know, wages on average have been stagnant for a long time. You know, the minimum wage in inflation-adjusted terms is far lower than it was, you know, in the 1960s. Uh, the labor share of income, you know, which is a way of measuring what percent of the total economic product, you know, goes to people who earn wages and salaries, is much lower than it was in 1970, and that's been a long-term trend, and none of that has been reversing. Uh, so you might think that there's not really any cause for the Fed to be worried about labor, and there's something kind of paranoid uh, about their response. If you look at the last two years or two and a half years. Nominal wages, which is the sort of wages just um, not adjusted for inflation, the number you would see on your paycheck, right? Uh, Nominal wages have been growing, but inflation has been growing too, so that uh, I think in the aggregate, real wages uh, have fallen a little bit relative to their pre-pandemic level. 
but there's a lot of diversity that's covered up by an aggregate number like that, right? Like the labor market contains many different segments, many different kinds of workers. And one of the most interesting things about the tight labor market of the last two years is that the wage growth has been fastest at the bottom, right? So the workers who make the least money, including these service workers that you were talking about, uh, have seen their wages grow the fastest and indeed have seen actual real wage growth, right? So uh, wage growth in excess of inflation. That's really interesting because it shows that one um, one effect that a tight labor market can have is is wage compression, right? So not just sort of evening the playing field between capital and labor, but among workers and people who own, earn salaries, uh, which, as you know, is an extremely diffuse, heterogeneous group, uh, you can have compression so that, you know, people who work at restaurants see their wages grow faster than people who work uh, at law firms with the result that the the income inequality within the working class is compressed. Um, and so it's not just wage growth that was concentrated at the bottom. It's also quits, right? An important measure of the tightness of the labor market and of the strength of workers is not just the unemployment rate, um, but the quit level. And we saw quits go through the roof um, over the last two years. This was referred to in some circles as the great resignation. And that was also concentrated particularly in the service sector. And so you saw basically, you know, people who had service jobs that they didn't like left those jobs for jobs that paid better. Uh, in other sectors. Uh, And that is significant to Powell um, and the Fed's current policy, because Powell can't actually point, you know, to like many signs of a wage price spiral or of any sort of threatening increase of labor power. But he can point to this incredible tightness uh, in the service sector and then point to the growth of um, prices and inflation recently in the sort of uh, low-wage service sector or what he calls services uh, excluding housing. Just a side note there is, you know, another thing that's confusing about the consumer price index is that housing is included in the services category. Why is it in particular that he's so focused on services other than than housing? Is it because he is personally upset with paying more for a Chipotle burrito or is it because that's where one of the, the few places in the labor market where there's been actual upward pressure on Wages, notably one of the places where it's been upward pressure, pressure on wages has been needed the most. It's funny you mentioned the personal thing because another Fed governor, um, Mary Daly, who's the president of the San Francisco Fed, actually recently said in a uh, in a speech to the American Enterprise Institute, right? So to a conservative audience, she said that the Fed actually does pay attention to their daily life, and that uh, the place where she gets her haircuts has been raising their prices a lot. <laughs> and that's she seriously cites, you know, this is an example of why the service price is out of control. So they're actually, you know, it sounds like a joke, but there is that anecdotal thing. But I think more seriously, um, what Powell would say is. You're seeing wage pressures there, and it's also the case that uh, in the service sector, labor costs are a high percentage of total costs, right? So compared to, you know, a sort of advanced uh, manufacturing sector, you know, like semiconductors or something, it's not, services are not very capital intensive, they're labor intensive, right? And so uh, labor costs are a high percentage of total costs. From Powell's perspective, that raises the, the danger that as labor costs rise, firms will be forced to pass on those costs in the form of price increases. And so because these sectors are particularly labor intensive, there's an added danger of a wage price spiral. Um, We can also add that services are just a huge part of the economy, right? There's far more of that than there is manufacturing now. And so what Powell would say is that the tightness of the labor market uh, for service workers and the labor intensiveness of that sector 
raises the possibility of a wage price spiral in a, a sort of dominant part of our economy. If you pushed harder at Powell or or others who believe what Powell believes, what does he think, do you think, should be done about service workers? Does he think that they're paid adequately or is that just not something that he's thinking about? It's a good question. Um, I recently read a transcript of a, a question and answer he did after a speech at the Brookings Institution where uh, someone in the audience, I swear it wasn't me, although it sounds like it could have been, actually asked him a question about the, the labor share of, of income. <laughs> and he basically ignored it. He got asked the question twice, uh, once from the audience and then a reporter who was moderating the event uh, sort of repeated it to him. And the first time he totally ignored it. The second time he said, that's not re- really what we're talking about here. So I think, you know, he would say that wage growth is good if it's consistent with price stability. He's very wary, I think, of directly talking about the distributional impact. Um, Another thing he said in this speech, which is interesting, is that he does see a role for automation and new investment in the service sector, uh, potentially to help relieve some of the pressure on the labor supply. Uh, But there are kind of two problems with that. One is that even even in a tight labor market like the one we're seeing, it's not really clear how many opportunities there are for kind of labor replacing investment, right? You you know, in a factory, it's fairly simple in a lot of cases to replace a worker with a robot. Uh, in the service sector, you know, there are QR code menus and self-ordering kiosks, right? There's some maybe low-hanging fruit there, but with a lot of things like childcare in particular, right? Um, it's very hard to imagine sort of completely automating that. So there's a sort of inherent difficulty with responding to a labor supply issue with uh, innovation in the service sector. On top of that, though, if Powell's goal is to make the labor market less tight and to bring down wage growth, then that's also going to reduce the incentive for capitalists to do whatever innovations are available in the service sector. So I think he's a little bit talking out of both sides of his mouth there, where on the one hand, he kind of welcomes the idea of uh, using robots to relieve the pressure on the labor supply instead of unemployment. But in terms of his policy, he's doing the thing that's going to make, you know, installing the robots less likely. As we discussed earlier, Koletsky described fights over inflation as as always class conflicts, however mediated or displaced they might appear. And right now, as always, it's abundantly clear that workers will suffer if interest rates are hiked to the point that a recession is induced. And so my question is, who, by contrast, stands to benefit? from a Fed-induced crash. Business, of course, loathes a tight labor market as much as workers welcome one. But but today, corporate profits are have been doing well, and I doubt that finance would welcome a stock market crash. Have the class coalitions around monetary policy changed since the eve of the Volcker shock? In, in our last interview, we discussed that, that while finance had always opposed inflation, that one factor that made the Volcker shock possible was that there was that there was a brief moment that emerged when non-financial capitalists joined the anti-inflation coalition or, or at least dropped their prior opposition to rising interest rates. Yeah. So let's just to like walk a step back, because I think I want to make sure it's clear to everyone uh, who's listening The reason that raising interest rates will be bad for workers is that the way that interest rates slow the economy most directly and most um, effectively is by reducing employment, raising unemployment, uh, 
which then has an effect on demand. And so raising interest rates will either fail to, to fight inflation effectively because the real cause is somewhere else, or it will do it by creating unemployment. There's not really any you know, third option there. So that's the class politics from the worker standpoint, I think are, are fairly clear. But your real question is about uh, capital, right? And the coalitions within capital. You know, clearly, I think labor and in, labor intensive employers, right, which includes both service sector stuff, which could include large chains, but also, you know, you know, you might imagine also that small business owners have a more direct and immediate sense of authority over their workers. And so they also feel this power imbalance more directly and personally than a corporate HR department might. So I think some of those, you know, either low profit margin, labor intensive or small business employers, that's going to be your sort of biggest, strongest anti-inflation faction at this point. The mom and pop restaurant who's had workers quitting nonstop since the pandemic started and can't seem to hire enough staff. Right. And probably everyone who's listening to this has seen a sort of, you know, handwritten sign on a piece of printer paper written in Sharpie, you know, sort of saying that the hours have been reduced or something and essentially blaming the lack of workers. Right. I feel like that's been a, a ubiquitous part of this weird two years that we've had. You ask about finance, which I think is one of the most interesting questions, because there's there's a lot of evidence that finance has a much more complicated relationship to inflation than it had in the past, right? Historically, finance was kind of at the center of sound money politics, of anti-inflation politics, the politics of the gold standard or of its uh, the sort of post-gold standard imposition of Volcker-style uh, shock therapy. Because inflation is good for debtors and bad for creditors, exactly. not in terms of all aspects of their lives necessarily, but in terms of that relationship, because the nominal value of the debt uh, stays the same while the actual value of it declines. Exactly right. And so it's, you know, it's significant that Paul Volcker came to the Fed from the Chase Manhattan Bank uh, and that he was suggested uh, to Carter as a Fed chair by David Rockefeller, who was the head of the Chase Manhattan Bank. What's interesting today is for a number of reasons, finance seems to be less uh, sort of monomaniacally hawkish and less anti-inflation. And this is for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the actual business of finance has become more complicated. So most financial entities now are both borrowers and lenders on a large scale. Right. So you can imagine a, an investment bank, which is leveraging or borrowing money to then make certain investments. They have, you know, exposure to interest rates in a new way. Another part of it is that the relatively easy money um, that we've seen has also been associated with high asset prices and uh, sort of historical booms in the stock market. And there's a perception on Wall Street that raising interest rates too quickly or to too high of a level will be really bad uh, for the stock market and for financial stability in general. And so this has led some people to conclude that finance is now sort of unequivocally easy money as a constituency, right? Uh, that there's no real constituency on Wall Street for tightening. And I think that that is a sort of overcorrection, you know, to, to, to put it that simply. Uh, for one thing, Jerome Powell is a former private equity person. The Federal Reserve as an institution is very close to the financial community, although it has enough distance to impose discipline sometimes. I think it would take fairly heroic assumptions about the relative autonomy of the Fed to think that they're doing something that has no relationship uh, to what finance desires. 
furthermore, I think when you look at the statements of a lot of people in finance, they seem to me to be uh, conflicted. I think I think they want, if possible, a kind of Goldilocks soft landing in which the Fed is able to bring down inflation without causing a recession. You know, I think they they want that. I think a really interesting figure to look at here is uh, Bill Ackman, who's a big financier, hedge fund manager. And if you look at Ackman's public statements uh, over the last two years, he's sort of all over the place. You know, one month he'll be like calling uh, for Powell to emulate Volcker and say it needs to, you know, bring the hammer down. The next month, he's really worried that the stock market is going to get too fucked up. And so then he'll tweet out that we need to increase immigration, you know, because that's a way you can bring down wages without raising interest rates. Most recently, and I think this is actually significant, Ackman has called uh, for an adjustment to the Fed's uh, inflation target. So just to back up a step there, um, the Fed has a formal target of 2% inflation. Uh, And when they're undershooting that, they want to make money easier, so they get up to that level. When they're overshooting it, as we are now, they want to tighten to get it down to 2%. And 2 is really low. 2 is really low um, by, you know, world historical standards. More, there's not even a sort of pseudo justification for this, right? You might imagine that it's arbitrary, but there's some kind of scholarly paper behind it that people point to, you know, that you could criticize, but it's there. You know, Milton Friedman must have written something about this. It's not true. No one really even knows exactly where it comes from. Uh, the best theory is that it's like an offhand comment uh, comment by some politician in New Zealand in the early 90s. <laughs> but even that people aren't confident of. So it's really, it's like an urban legend that has become, uh, you know, a sort of, guiding force for the most powerful economic decision makers in the world. And so, you know, this fact is recognized by anyone who's ever paid attention to the fact seriously. And it's led to increasing pressure um, for the Fed to just redefine its target, right? Because you could just say, if the Fed targets, you know, 3% inflation or 4% inflation instead of 2, automatically that limits how much damage they're going to have to do to meet their target. Um, And Bill Ackman has recently come out and said the Fed should raise its uh, target to 3%. Around the same time, William Spriggs, who's the chief economist of the AFL-CIO, right, the Labor Union Federation, also called for the 3% inflation target. And so in terms of coalitions, it's really interesting to think about Ackman and this guy from the AFL-CIO both making this call uh, for the 3% inflation target. But the the caveat I would kind of tack on to this fable I'm telling about Ackman is that his uh, embrace of this new target doesn't necessarily mean that he's not worried about inflation. I think it means that he just wants to stabilize it at a level which won't be too painful. So if you could stabilize it at a higher level, he would like that. I think if it threatened to get out of control, he might return to his sort of more hawkish uh, mood that we've seen at other points over the last two years. We've set the domestic scene a bit, but, but before we move on, we should note that capitalism is most certainly a world system. How does the Fed and its moves relate to to other central banks and what they do all over the world more and more specifically what at present is the monetary dynamic at the global level and where does the fed fit into it all so the thing about the u.s federal reserve right the central bank of the united states is that it's a de facto central bank for the entire world and this is true for a couple of different reasons one is that the dollar is the sort of de facto world money, right? It's the, it's the reserve currency. It's the currency in which many transactions all over the world are denominated. It's the safe asset that uh, people who hold wealth all over the world seek to store their money in when they want to keep it safe. Uh, so part of it is just the importance of the dollar. Uh, the other, and this is related to the importance of the dollar, is that the Fed has a kind of room for maneuver that a lot of 
other central banks don't have, right? They have the the freedom to run a very loose policy uh, if they want to for a very long time because uh, there's such strong structural forces supporting uh, the role of the dollar in the world economy. And so for this reason, uh, especially over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, the Fed has really um, become of increasing importance to the world economy, both directly and indirectly. Directly, uh, we saw this with the establishment of what are called swap lines after the 2008 crisis, and the swap lines still exist. The swap lines essentially uh, create a way for the Federal Reserve uh, to provide dollar liquidity to other central banks in other countries. And so that's almost like a, it's a step towards officially embracing this role as a central banker to the world, right? To recognize uh, that the Federal Reserve is not just providing liquidity to the U.S. economy, but is, you know, potentially providing liquidity to the South Korean economy through these swaps with the South Korean uh, central bank. But even aside from the swap lines, which are kind of the most dramatic and, and direct example of this, what the Fed does has impacts all over the world, uh, because if the Fed raises interest rates, other central banks uh, are sort of compelled to follow if they don't want to see money flow out of their economy and into the United States in pursuit of the higher interest rates. Uh, and so there's a sort of cumulative tightening cycle, uh, which the U.S. has helped to kick off uh, it, it's worth noting that the Fed wasn't the first central bank to tighten. Uh, the Brazilian central bank, which has always been extremely hawkish, actually tightened first. But in terms of you know the momentousness of the tightening, uh, the Federal Reserve towers above everyone else. And when they do it, uh, everyone else kind of has to follow along. We saw this dramatically uh, just in the last couple of days when the Bank of Japan, which had been kind of a holdout uh, among central banks for its dovish policies, has also signaled a shift uh, towards uh, higher rates. And so because there's this sort of uh, competitive dynamic of capital flowing towards higher interest rates, when the Fed raises, uh, other people have to raise. And that has the effect of uh, the Fed's policies being amplified, right? So even if there weren't this amplification effect, it would still be the case that tighter money in the U.S. has effects on the world economy because the U.S. economy is a powerful driver of the entire world economy. But on top of that, the Fed's rates sort of have an even bigger effect than they would on their own, and maybe even more than the Fed intends because they're immediately magnified by these uh, rate hikes elsewhere. And so this has led, um, you know, people like Adam Tews to argue that because of the sort of globally interdependent uh, cycle of tightening, the Fed's tightening is, is, has led to a global tightening of money and credit conditions, which is really unprecedented in its, its swiftness and its intensity. It, it's interesting because it's like from the left, we often think of there being this broader capitalist world system that's not really being precisely run by anyone in particular. But in a sense, that world system is in significant part governed by <laughs> by a um, by the Fed. <laughs> if if anyone's running it, they are right. I mean, we we want to be careful, you know, not to. I, I'm trying to say that my big pause there was to try to avoid sounding like Ron Paul, but it's certainly something. No, it's true, and I think I mean. The Fed has attracted a lot of interest from conspiracy theorists for for the very good reason that it is a, a small, unelected group of people who exercise perhaps more control over economic events than any other group of people, right? We don't want to exaggerate their control. Um, 
in certain ways, uh, their their impotence is also really striking, right? You know, we're, we're in a situation where food and energy prices uh, and semiconductor prices are rising, and the Fed can't do anything about that, right? Jay Powell himself would tell you, we can't drill more oil, we can't, you know, relieve the pressure on grain or meat markets, we can't negotiate an end to the war in the Ukraine. So from a certain perspective, the impotence of the Fed is really striking. But to the to the extent that any group of people has control over economic events, um, the Fed does. And if they don't have the power to relieve supply constraints, they do sort of unquestionably have the power to create a recession if and when they want, which is a really, you know, a godlike power, I think, uh, is the only way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, imagine U.S. fiscal policy decided on by Congress and the president guiding the global redistribution of wealth. It's it's technically possible and well well beyond the, the, the sort of more narrow technical means of the Fed, but politically impossible. And so the Fed has these these narrow but incredibly decisive powers. And you make a, you make an important point there, which is, you know, this this unique and really kind of striking power that the Fed has is, you know, partly the result of its legal constitution and its institutional structure, but it's also the result of a, a kind of default by other parts of American government, right? You know, I think it's significant that we're about to face another debt ceiling standoff, right, where we face this really totally wild situation where the U.S. government has a debate about whether to, like, keep its own lights on for reasons which are, you know, completely economically unsound and which business roundtable, AFL-CIO, and every academic economist would tell you is not an issue. Uh, and yet, for these sort of inscrutable partisan reasons, we have this debate every couple of years and it's, you know, it's just wild. So in the context of that kind of institutional failure, where there's a struggle even to keep the lights on, much less sort of, you know, coordinate and plan fiscal policy on a national, let alone international level, in the context of that default, the Fed's power is magnified even further, right? Because all this stuff gets placed on them and all these goals uh, are supposed to be achieved through monetary policy, which is uh, a very, you know, a very specific and in certain ways a blunt lever for for doing all these things that we're asking of the Fed. Yeah, the, the dysfunction of the elected branches of government amid and kind of perhaps not coincidentally coinciding with the ever-growing complexity of the global economy shifts ever more power to technocrats who operate at, at a remove. That's exactly right. And it, it complicates the politics uh, of the issue because, you know, you might think as people on the left, we ought, we ought to be, you know, generally quite critical of unelected technocrats, especially when they have the kind of, you know, class bias that the Federal Reserve has tended to have. Uh, on the other hand, in, you know, in this situation of, of basically total institutional dysfunction, I think it's easy even for people on the left, you know, I, I include myself in this, to start to feel a kind of sympathy for, for the Federal Reserve, uh, if only for the, you know, the very basic reason that they do have a coherent plan, right? They are planners. They have some vision of what will happen, which is, you know, more in touch with reality than Mitch McConnell's plan. Let's turn to the many, many competing accounts of today's inflation. One is that it's been caused by pandemic-related supply chain disruptions. So alongside this pandemic time shift in consumption from services to goods, which in turn put incredible pressure on those supply chains, all of which was then worsened by by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which also had particular effects on on particular sectors like like grain exports. What's your assessment of that causal analysis? So I think one of the things that's been really interesting about the the sort of 
the intellectual coverage or reception, if you want to call it that, of the recent inflation is that there's just been a huge flowering of, of interest in these these supply side explanations of inflation, right? I think in earlier moments, uh, most people would have chalked up inflation just to excess demand and really stop, you know, the the story there. And even if you think about the way that people uh, remember the 1970s, which was clearly a decade of important supply shocks, like the you know the various oil shocks and you know there was uh, grain price shocks as well. Even the 1970s, with those clear supply stories, has often been remembered just as a time when there was too much money or like wages were too high. And so I think, in contrast to that frame of reference, which had prevailed you know for decades, uh, you now see an interest in these sector-specific supply stories, not just on the left, um, maybe not even especially on the left, but you know on things like the Odd Lots podcast uh, from Bloomberg or uh, in the Federal Reserve's own reports, in the coverage by the New York Times, sort of all over the place. And I think one reason this has happened is that it was very clear, especially during the first stage of the inflation, uh, say for the first year, that the price increases were concentrated in a few sectors. Um, most important were motor vehicles and some other durable goods and energy prices uh, and rents. You know, people who've like really drilled down in an extremely nitty gritty way uh, to look at where the price increases were found that, you know, for the first year, uh, it was really nearly all uh, explained by a few sectors that like were clearly linked to the pandemic in certain ways. And I think that reality was hard for people to ignore. What's happened since then uh, is there has been some broadening of the categories of prices which have been rising. And so I think as that has happened, there's been kind of a comeback for the more conventional story about uh, aggregate excess of demand because you see prices rising in sectors that aren't as uh, as specialized. They're not as directly linked to the pandemic or the reopening. Uh, and there's just, you know, more of them, right? A, a bigger percentage of the prices in the price index uh, have been changing. That said, I still think that the there's a basic plausibility uh, to the idea that the most important factors in the inflation have been these sort of special conditions related to the pandemic and to the war and to supply disruptions. Uh, and you see that now again, I think, uh, by some measures, the inflation is is, narr- is coming down and it's also narrowing again. So if you look at how many prices are driving the, the increase in the overall price index, it was at the beginning a small number of prices, then it broadened, and there's some signs that it's becoming narrower again. So if that's the case, why has the Fed responded by hiking interest rates? Is the Fed buying this more demand-driven account of inflation because, as you just said, inflation has, has spread across a broader swath of the economy to become broader? Or is it a sort of when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail situation? So they may recognize the supply side issues, but don't believe that central banks can do anything about it. Is the Fed sort of predisposed to a monetarist sort of view, given that what they control is the money supply, not fiscal policy? So I think it's I think the answer to your question is, is the second thing you said about when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And to think about it conceptually, there's a little bit of a false dichotomy in talking about supply or demand as what's at issue, because even if you have a a supply constraint on a specific part of the economy, say uh, the supply of energy or semiconductors is driving the inflation, it is possible to relieve the bottleneck in the specific sector by reducing demand in the economy until it's below the supply available of those things. Because if I get if I get fired, if I get laid off, then I'm 
neither buying a new car nor a new video game console. Exactly. So a supply constraint is only binding if there's demand for the thing that's being supplied. So there's always an interaction of these things going on. What's at stake, though, is that if you decide that the level of demand in the entire economy is going to be reduced to the thing which is the the most narrow supply constraint, you're reducing uh, the demand for a lot of other things below the available supply. So in order to get demand in line with the availability of new cars, you're going to end up creating idle capacity in a lot of other lines uh, where they actually could accommodate more demand if only uh, this one bottleneck were broken. And so I think the Fed has takes this view. I think they're, they're basically persuaded by the supply side accounts, uh, and they also acknowledge that they can't really do anything about these various supply issues. But they do think that they have a responsibility to restore price stability, and they do think that if they reduce demand enough, that will have an effect not on relieving the supply constraints, but on making the supply constraints less binding because no one's asking for new cars anymore. The popular fiscal hawk explanation for inflation, common amongst conservatives and centrists, some centrists alike, revolves around the economic stimulus of the early years of the pandemic. In short, that there was too much of it, especially too much in the form of checks sent out to everyday people, which contributed to this tight labor market and thus gave workers too much leverage vis-a-vis employers pushing up wages. In essence, that's a monetarist account, that inflation was caused by the government simply printing too much money. What is the status of that account? We talked a little bit about the Fed's focus on bringing down service worker wages, but Powell's view, I think, is still not the view of, say, Larry Summers. Yeah, so... The, what you're calling, you know, the sort of simple monitor's explanation that the problem is printing money is, I think, completely untenable for the reason that monetary policy was also very loose and deficits were being run, you know, for the 10 years between 2008 and 2018 without any real evidence of it causing inflation, right? So the idea that it's just too much money doesn't make a lot of sense. I think there's a stronger case to be made that spending contributes to price increases, right? So printing money is one thing. It's another thing for people to spend the money. And so if you think that the sort of, not the monetary, but the fiscal policy aspects of the pandemic response put money in the pockets of people who would tend to spend the money, right? Like working people, there's some plausibility there about that story. And again, that relates to the conversation we were just having, which is that without without effective demand, supply constraints aren't binding. So if you had responded to the pandemic by having a depression, right, and having everyone's incomes fall, no one would have been buying new cars and no one would have even noticed that there was a semiconductor shortage. So there's a kind of like truth to that story, but then it raises the question of, should we have done anything differently? Would it have been better to respond to the pandemic by having a depression uh, if that meant there wouldn't be inflation? And I think the answer to that is is clearly no. There was going to be some cost of the the pandemic in economic terms always, and paying that cost in terms of rising prices seems you know, far preferable than paying it in terms of a depression. One more thing I'd add is that even if you accept uh, the view that spending by the government and spending by households during the pandemic was a sort of necessary part of the inflation, you shouldn't exaggerate that either because the government's fiscal stance was actually tightening uh, during the period when the inflation accelerated and became more broadly based. And so if there was like really a direct connection between these things, um, you would expect that to be moving in the opposite direction. To the extent that universal basic income sort of policies can contribute to inflation, is is there an argument there for progressive fiscal policy 
focusing on funding universal basic services rather than putting money in people's pockets to spend in whatever sector of the capitalist marketplace they choose? I think so. And I think a good example for thinking about that is is healthcare, which uh, is a huge part of not just the price index, but actually this uh, the service part of the price index that we've been talking about where uh, prices have been increasing. So, you know, if you think about the health, the healthcare sector, which is, you know, an important part of the budget for many households and is really, you know, intimately tied up with the government in many, many ways and where the government has various forms of leverage they could use and, you know, they could seek new forms of leverage. I think seeking to control the prices within that sector while making sure that everyone has access to those services would be more effective than just giving people money uh, to give to for-profit healthcare providers who can then run up their margins essentially on a cost-plus basis because of this government demand. If we want to think about what a, a left-wing anti-inflation strategy would look like, I think controlling costs in healthcare by limiting the profits of healthcare and pharmaceutical providers would have a noticeable impact on the CPI. And it's something you couldn't do just through giving people money to spend. Notably, defense spending never seems to be on the chopping block. And it was defense spending, after all, during the Vietnam War, that did so much to drive inflation in the 1960s and 70s. And and today, we're once again seeing record levels of defense spending not seen since, I think, the, the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan during the aughts. What role might defense spending be playing in driving inflation right now? And at the risk of setting up a real kind of T-ball question for you, why why is that not part of the discussion? Yeah, I mean, we're on the verge of spending nearly a trillion dollars every year uh, on the defense budget, right? I think the, the budget that they just passed is $850 billion or something. Uh, and there was a really just great textbook example of the way this is discussed uh, in a New York Times story about the, the defense budget the other day. This story, it mentions how high the budget is. It mentions that Congress like tacked on more money than Biden even wanted to fund uh, weapon systems that even the military doesn't want. So these clear signs of excess and bloat. And it also mentioned the fact that inflation has reduced the real value of the military budget. On top of that, it mentioned that uh, you know Lockheed and Raytheon and these other huge defense contractors are complaining about uh, how hard it is for them to find skilled workers or to source certain you know, components like semiconductors. And so there's all this stuff about how big the budget is, uh, about the effects of inflation, but there's not even a sentence suggesting that defense spending might be contributing to inflation. And so just, you know, if you do the thought experiment of what would happen if there was a $850 billion a year Green New Deal budget, right, which is, you know, far more than we're spending on climate. If you had that program uh, and you had it sort of competing actively for skilled workers and microelectronics and these various things which were in short supply, you could imagine the New York Times would at the very least uh, mention that it might be contributing to inflation, uh, even if it didn't sort of say that conclusively. With defense, it just doesn't appear. If anything, the argument is just that inflation means defense spending needs to rise in order to make up for the real value that's been lost due to inflation. With that said, I I think it's still somewhat an empirically open question how much defense spending is contributing uh, to the current inflation, and I'd like to see more uh, careful work done on it. There's a, a really interesting paper that came out quite recently by the economist Isabella Weber, who's been on The Dig before, and her, uh, some co-authors, where they do a, uh, an input-output analysis of important prices to try to see 
sort of at a fundamental level of, of you know, inputs like energy and, and food, which prices are the most significant in terms of causing inflation, right? Because if you look at like the consumer price index as a measure of prices, that's looking at the prices of what are called final goods and services, right? So things that are on sale to the consumer, you know, like motor vehicles. Uh, it doesn't look at intermediate goods, right? But intermediate goods are a lot of the economy and they represent costs to the final goods. And so Weber and her- like- like capital, like capital goods or? Yeah, or energy is sort of an easy one to think mm-hmm. about or oh, right. steel right. or aluminum. But yeah, any kind of producer's goods uh, or an energy input. And so what Weber and her co-authors find is that it's actually a very small number of, of prices, of input prices that drive a lot of inflation. And their analysis suggests, at least initially, that defense spending has not been a huge part of the recent inflation. Uh, but I think that we need more examination of that and certainly defense spending should not be exempt from this examination. It should be actually probably the area of public spending that's getting the most scrutiny. Um, There's also, on top of the defense budget, foreign policy comes into play in terms of the war in Ukraine, which has also been a direct contribution to the inflation. uh, And I'm certainly not going to take any stand uh, on that war uh, in public because I don't really feel informed enough. uh, But in terms of, you know, the way in which the U.S. military uh, is affecting consumer prices in the United States, I think probably the military conflict has a, a bigger effect than the, the procurement budget. And I imagine there are different ways that you could measure the effect of defense spending on inflation. Like, for example, and I think you alluded to this earlier, what if you were to model what it would look like to redeploy a big chunk of both the capital and expert labor currently employed in defense in the defense industries to the very industries that are undergoing supply chain issues or shortages or under under capacity. That's a great point, right? So what you're saying is that even if, uh, you know, by most measures, defense spending is not driving inflation, there's an opportunity cost to using all these engineers, uh, employing them at Lockheed rather than employing them uh, to make sure that we can have enough electric vehicles for everyone who wants one, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire, edited by Jihad Abu Salim, Jennifer Bing, and Mike Merriman Lotz. Gaza, home to two million people, continues to face suffocating conditions imposed by Israel. This distinctive anthology imagines what the future of Gaza could be, while reaffirming the critical role of Gaza in Palestinian identity, history, and struggle for liberation. Light in Gaza is a seminal, moving, and wide-ranging anthology of Palestinian writers and artists. As political discourse shifts towards futurism as a means of reimagining a better way of living, beyond the violence and limitations of colonialism, Light in Gaza is an urgent and powerful intervention into an important political moment. As Ali Abunima puts it, This brilliant, funny, and inspiring collection of stories and essays by writers in Gaza was exactly what I needed to reinvigorate my hope and determination to work for a future that uplifts us all. Light in Gaza, 
out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Okay, so we've covered some of the supply-side accounts of inflation, though, though not all of them, as well as demand-side theories that revolve around government spending and its interaction with a tighter labor market. But there is yet another causal story. Some on the left, and sometimes you hear this from the Biden administration as well, point to corporate profiteering, particularly corporate profiteering made possible by monopoly power as a significant factor. What do you make of the argument? It's a complicated one, uh, and I've I've done my best to sort of read smart people who've written about it, and and they seem to disagree among themselves about exactly how to think about the problem. What does seem clear is that by many measures, uh, corporate profits are at record or near record levels, um, and so you know at the very least we can say that while you know wages have not sort of departed meaningfully from you know their sort of long run pattern of being repressed, uh, we have seen a lot of action in corporate profits. There's then a sort of separate question about to what extent that behavior of corporate profits or, you know, certain measurements of corporate profits has been causally central to the inflation. And that question is trickier to answer, uh, partly because of really basic questions about data, which I think are actually political in an interesting way. We just don't know a lot about how corporate pricing decisions happen, and we don't know about uh, profit margins on particular products, right? You know, uh, public companies do release earning reports, and so, you know, you can imagine uh, figuring out how much profit Johnson & Johnson is making, but we don't really know sort of what profit they're making on a specific kind of diaper or how they made that decision. So I think... You know, one answer to this question is it's hard to know, but that the answer is that we should have much more of a public spotlight on these like potentially very important decisions about pricing and profit. Uh, so that's, you know, that's my acknowledgement of the fact that there's still a lot of debate about this. However, I think that there's mounting evidence that corporate profit margins have contributed in some way to the recent inflation. One of the most detailed empirical studies on this was done uh, by Mike Konzel, who's a macroeconomist at the Roosevelt Institute. And he looked at firm-level um, markups, right? So how much firms are marking up prices over costs. And he found that there were significant increases in markups in the last couple of years. And sort of more interestingly, that the firms that did the most marking up in the last couple of years were also the firms that had been doing the most marking up before 2020, and so that's a suggestion that uh, increases in markups during the pandemic inflation were caused by market power because the firms that were able to do it uh, even before this you know, sort of recent boom were already doing it. They just started doing it more intensely during the recent inflation. One more piece of evidence that you know, some people might consider circumstantial, but I find actually quite telling, is that uh, Lael Brainard, who's a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, has mentioned in a couple of speeches uh, that they've observed rising profit margins uh, you know, well in advance of any rise in costs, whether labor or other input costs, in certain sectors, uh, including retail. And 
you know, if you know anything about the Federal Reserve, you know that they do not go out of their way to criticize businesses, uh, you know, for their decisions about pricing or to call into question the rate of profit. Uh, that stands in stark contrast to their their glib loquaciousness about how wages need to be brought under control. Um, so the fact that a member of the Federal Reserve Board was naming specific industries and calling out their margins uh, suggests to me that they wouldn't do that without pretty good reason to do it. It's hard to imagine what the Fed gains from sort of making up a story about greedflation. And is the mechanism here sort of a two-step whereby rising prices in general, this context of inflation, provides corporations with an opportunity where consumers are being conditioned to accept rising prices and so they can get away with raising prices beyond some sort of like necessary, um, quote unquote, necessary rate caused by their own rising costs, either in terms of intermediate goods or or labor. And then the fact that they hold monopoly power means that they won't have competitors undercutting them by by competing, by offering comparable goods at a lower price because there there aren't competitors. Yeah, I think I think both of those things are exactly right. And um, there's a, an organization called Groundwork, which has um, studied a lot of corporate earnings calls and found, you know, strong anecdotal evidence that there are, you know, corporations talking about doing this sort of thing, right? Sort of opportunistically using the situation of general price increases to impose a price increase, uh, which is in excess of the costs, uh, you know, that are that they're actually facing. You might, I think, respond to that by saying that corporations are going to just profit maximize. And so there's nothing scandalous in it. You know, what what reason would they have to limit their cost increase to their actually increased costs. But I think what makes it a, a political question is this issue of market power, right? Um, and you can see like a really good example of that with the railways, um, which have become extremely concentrated, right? Uh, just the sort of nature of running a railroad is, you know, with all that fixed capital is that there's not a lot of competition, right? No one's going to move in next to Warren Buffett, build an entire new class one, you know, freight railroad and compete with him on price. And so, you know, there's there's a spectrum of industries ranging from something like railroads to, you know, something like the international grain market, uh, where the railroads are, you know, sort of extremely concentrated and, and the grain market has a lot of small, uncoordinated producers. But, you know, if if the firms that are raising their prices in excess of their costs are the more concentrated ones that have market power, I think that becomes, you know, sort of inherently a political question. And you know, I think at this point, something like price controls seems politically impossible in the United States, but it seems completely uh, possible, uh, eminently reasonable that Congress should demand some kind of permanent standing oversight of how pricing decisions are made and what profit margins are in uh, economically significant industries. And, you know, hopefully that would come with some kind of a real subpoena power where you could just, you know, ask them to open their books and present information uh, that would help us clear this up. Yeah, it also gets to the fact that it's deemed legitimate for the Fed to check the price of labor, but not for the government to control the prices of goods and services. Right. I mean, it's really interesting. At the same time that I'm saying that price controls are impossible, Jerome Powell has announced a kind of explicit target for wage growth, right? So he has an incomes policy. He says, we want wage growth, but it has to be consistent with our 2% inflation target. And here's, you know, what that wage growth would look like. That's, you know, what is that if not a sort of price control for wages. Um, or, you know, you can think of another example, which which in some cases benefits homeowners is, you know, we have um, 
the 30-year fixed mortgage, right, uh, is a kind of price control for homeowners, which renters don't get to have. So there's all kinds of double standards in the system. And, you know, in both the case of homeowners or this case of profits versus wages, they tend to benefit people who own property rather than people who rent or people who work. Returning to the supply side question, many on the left argue that inflation has been driven by a lack of a lack of productive capacity in the economy. In, in other words, that, that drags on the output of goods and services in whatever sector or, or maybe across the board help cause abrupt price spikes. Radhika Desai writes in the New Left Review, quote, the real culprit here is the diminution of U.S. productive capacity caused by four decades of neoliberal policies, disinvestment, deregulation, outsourcing, which have rendered the economy extremely vulnerable to supply chain disruption and prevented supply-side measures to bring prices down. So we are, we've discussed the supply chain disruption issue, but, but this is an argument about what makes the economy vulnerable to supply chain disruption in general. Explain this argument that's operating at a somewhat deeper level and, and tell me what you make of it. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think, you know, within the left, there are all kinds of disagreements about monetary policy, about asset price inflation, about the role of corporate profits. As far as I know, everyone seems to agree that fixed investment, both by businesses and public investment, has been really low, you know, for several decades in the United States. People might argue about when this started. Um, but as far as I know, no one really questions this, and it's accepted also by many mainstream economists and by the Biden administration. Uh, and so that sort of creates, well, there's two things to talk about, right? One is sort of where does this, where does the underinvestment come from? And the other question is, is how is it contributing to inflation? I guess I'll start with how it contributes to inflation. Uh, you know, the idea here is that the supply constraints that have contributed to the recent inflation are not just the result of these sort of exogenous shocks like, you know, there's a pandemic, obviously that's going to lead to problems in the supply chain. There's a war that's obviously going to lead to problems in the supply chain. Those events mattered. I think it's often the case that shocks reveal existing fragilities rather than creating the fragilities, right? Um, and you can think about, there are a lot of examples of that. I think it's analogous with a, a financial crisis. You know, there's often, there's an event or a news item that causes, you know, a financial crisis. But when you look, there's usually some pre-existing fragility building up in the system that had to be tipped off. It's like, you know, a spark can't set something on fire unless there's already flammable material. And so in this case, the really low rate of uh, fixed investment in the economy meant uh, that the economy didn't have a lot of spare capacity. So when there were disruptions because of the pandemic or because of the war, those constraints became really binding. If you imagine a system with more capacity built in, uh, with more resiliency, more redundancy, right, would be another way of thinking about it, then you could actually have these sort of episodic disruptions to supply without them being catastrophic. But under neoliberalism, there have been sort of, you know, an approach to corporate governance, which focuses on sort of, you know, cutting the fat and returning money to shareholders, right, in the forms of dividends and buybacks while avoiding sort of costly and risky capital investments. There's also been a way of uh, restructuring production, which focuses on, on lean production or just-in-time supply chains, where the whole purpose of the thing is to try to increase profits by ironing out any redundancy in the system. And so you sort of have 
not just of not just a lack of investment, but a whole approach to structuring production and circulation, which systematically takes spare capacity out of the system. And what that means is that there's not a lot of uh, room for error if something like a pandemic or a war happens. The second part of, of what you know, you're asking about is, is sort of where does this underinvestment come from? And there are a couple of different stories there, which I think are probably mostly compatible with each other. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, so one thing you hear about a lot is uh, shareholder control and the, uh, something called the shareholder revolution. And the idea there is that, uh, especially since the 1980s, shareholders uh, of publicly owned companies have organized and become activists to put pressure on corporate managers to pursue certain strategies, right? And these strategies have tended to favor maximizing free cash flow, which is then used uh, either to buy back the company's own stock and inflate the value of the stock or return to the shareholders in in the form of dividends or also uh, in the form of lavish executive compensation. And that doing that in some ways comes at the expense of uh, investing, right, in, in new capacity. And you see, uh, you know, I think we had a really clear demonstration of this uh, in a couple of recent kind of headline cases. One is with the the oil and uh, natural gas industries where, um, you know, there's a there was a lack of, of energy in response to the surge of demand. And even as prices rose, uh, there wasn't a lot of interest in new investment in those sectors. And, you know, there were surveys done, um, including by the the branch of the Fed in Texas, sort of asking producers, well, why isn't why aren't you responding to the higher prices with more investment? And the biggest thing that the the energy producers mentioned was what's called capital discipline. And so the idea of capital discipline is there's pressure from the shareholders uh, to keep your capital spending, your investment in new plant and equipment low. In this case, it's interesting because it's it's not just that the shareholders are greedy; it's that there's actually a real risk involved in investment which is that there won't be demand there um, to sort of validate the investment once it's finished, right? Investment takes time. You know, if I'm going to build a new factory or a new oil well, uh, it's not going to be done tomorrow. It's going to be done maybe in a couple of years. And so a capitalist is taking a, a gamble when you build that, that the demand will be there um, and that there won't be a depression. What happened in the energy uh sector specifically is that there was a huge boom, a huge expansion of capacity um, around fracking uh, in response to an earlier spike in prices. And a lot of those firms um, ended up really wiped out uh, because there wasn't actually the final demand there and there was a kind of overexpansion. And OPEC also launched sort of a coordinated assault on the American fracking boom. Exactly. Right. So there was there was also this you know situation where there's there's global capacity controlled by a fairly effective cartel, um, which can exaggerate these things which are already present in the market. And so there's a kind of, you know, there's a rational basis to this capital discipline, if you want to think about it that way. Another industry where we see this clearly is in, in railroads, which I mentioned before. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of at the heart of the recent labor dispute uh, among rail workers and, and their employers was a, a version of this shareholder strategy, which was imposed uh, by activist shareholders, including actually Bill Ackman, who I mentioned earlier in connection with the inflation targeting. Ackman and and his buddies, um, including eventually Warren Buffett, sort of decided that 
they were going to make the railroads more profitable by really minimizing operating expenses, including labor costs, um, so that they could return more money to shareholders. And this meant, you know, running really long trains. Uh, they were lobbying Congress so that they can run trains with like one conductor. And so that's another really just direct example where you can trace the pressure, you know, from specific well-organized, uh, you know, big institutional shareholders to a very fragile model of of running and a very cautious approach to the kind of supply side investment that uh, people who see supply as key to inflation would like to see happen. The, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 was, as we know, a stripped down reiteration of Biden's earlier big legislative initiative, Build Back Better, just stripped of its most ambitious and often progressive elements, but still a pretty big deal. And then alongside the Inflation Reduction Act, we have seen the CHIPS Act, the American Rescue Plan Act, and the Infrastructure Bill all focused on dealing with a lack of productive capacity across the economy and in certain sectors in a way that I think has is pretty unusual in recent American history. What does the proposal of Build Back Better, the passage of IRA and the CHIPS Act and the American Rescue Plan Act, the infrastructure bill, what does that tell us about these competing theories in American politics? Does it does it signify does it signify that that portions of the liberal policymaking elite are are in fact not wedded to a sort of soft monetarism and deficit hawkery in the way they might might have been? A decade ago that that policymakers largely, in fact, believe that inflation must be tackled by increasing supply rather than throttling demand. And then lastly, to what degree will the IRA and these other measures actually get at solve for these supply side problems? So I think that there is a genuine you know change going on in the Democratic Party and within you know liberalism more broadly. That is very clear if you compare, you know, these these Biden initiatives that you mentioned to the Obama administration. Uh, you know, the Obama administration in there in the the Obama stimulus contained what was at the time relatively large by the sort of pathetic standards of American history, but is in retrospect, you know, really tiny amount of funding for any kind of green investment. But really, the core of you know the Obama crisis response was to get financial markets running again. Uh, and then to move on to entitlement reform, even at a time when unemployment was still around 10%. And so I think Obama was still like very much in the mindset that responsibility and, you know, price stability called for cutting Social Security and, you know, raising taxes. And that's different uh, than the Biden response. I think that there is a real commitment born partly out of the the recognition of a necessity for a green transition, but also out of a, a growing sense of rivalry with China, right? Um, and this is clear in stuff written um, by various people who went on to become part of the Biden administration in the lead up, you know, to 2020, that it's really China's example as a mixed economy with significant state-directed investment, uh, which has made them effective both in terms of energy policy crisis response and uh, militarily, I think that's like pretty important uh, to the whatever is genuine in this embrace of the sort of supply side view. Uh, however, it's also notable that the Biden administration has been completely supportive of Powell's hawkish turn 
they haven't even really slightly criticized it or implicitly. Uh, Biden has actually gone out of his way to say that he will never criticize them because he values Fed independence. And so, you know, you might think about that as a kind of good cop, bad cop strategy, or you might just think that the Biden administration thinks that it cannot uh, afford to pick a fight with the Fed, you know, because of whatever effect that would have on on business confidence. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there's a little bit of a you know, again, talking out of both sides of one's mouth uh, to sort of promote the Inflation Reduction Act and then also not even breathe a hint that this might be in conflict with a concerted effort to slow down the economy and slow down hiring. One more thing to say is that there's a, you know, there's a difference between public investment and um, what the economist Paul Samuelson called uh, the bribe to capital formation, which is a phrase I love. You know, there are different things the government can do to induce investment. One is to become an investor themselves, like you would see in the Tennessee Valley Authority or something. Another one is to just, you know, basically bribe uh, producers, private producers to invest. And almost everything we've seen from the Biden administration has been examples of, of the bribery approach, right? You say, oil producers are unwilling to drill because they don't know if the demand will be there. You say, we'll guarantee the demand will be there. Please go and drill your well. You do that instead of building a government well or building a government refinery. Um, And that's not surprising given the state of uh, power and the balance of class forces in American society. But it is worth insisting on because, uh, you know, public investment is is a different approach and one that, as far as I'm concerned, we're not really trying yet. What accounts for for Biden's economic and domestic policy team looking so different from Obama's or or the emergence of Ezra Klein's supply-side progressivism, something very different from the center of democratic wonkery a decade ago. What is going on in democratic economic policymaking and what and what accounts for for the shifts? And and then you just mentioned the Biden administration's continuing support for the Fed's monetary tightening. What then are the hard limits that remain even amid these shifts? What what remains beyond the pale? So I would I would narrate the shift sort of starting maybe with the 2016 election, which I think, you know, came as a huge shock to many people in the United States, including, you know, the Democratic Party policy elite. And I think, you know, the election of Trump brought home to them uh, that there were in some, you know, however however indirect and however mediated, there were real political costs um, to the Obama approach to handling the economy. And I think it's significant uh, that the 2016 election was preceded not by an outright recession, but by a real noticeable slowdown in the economy that was actually caused by the Fed uh, raising interest rates. And this, you know, affected demand in a lot of the world and in certain parts of the United States. And there have been, you know, I think pretty credible efforts to connect that slowdown um, with the 2016 election. Which also just, I think, brought a lot of, you know, awareness of the so-called death of despair and the idea that a lot of the country was not really doing well economically. And, you know, places like Ohio, which, you know, were willing to vote for Obama um, and then have become solidly red states. So I think there was some there was some shock there at the electoral defeat. Then during the Trump administration, you know, we had had easy monetary policy for a while with these intermittent attempts to raise rates, which, you know, the Fed would usually back off of. Trump actually introduced a new level of, of fiscal policy, which was somewhat unexpected. Um, if you go back and read Paul Krugman columns from around 2018, he is actually warning that Trump's tax cuts and military budget are going to push the economy into overheating territory. And so Krugman is actually sort of striking a fiscal conservative note relative uh, to Trump. 
Uh, but Trump showed that you could sort of do this thing, and it actually ended up pushing the economy uh, towards lows of unemployment that we hadn't seen before. And so I think there was a sort of experiment, which was maybe easier for a Republican president to do first than a Democrat, uh, which just shifted everyone's sense of like what was possible and like how low unemployment could go. And then finally, you know, there's the China issue, which I which I mentioned before, and I think is it's significant both as a, a real motive and as a way of selling this policy, I think. But there's an idea that, you know, especially in, in, in certain strategic sectors, you know, where semiconductors are, are pretty uh, exemplary, that, you know, American capitalism, at least as currently structured, was at real danger of falling behind, you know, the sort of capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And that created, a, I think, a real openness to this. Um, and of course, the pandemic, you know, also created an openness for for spending and you know transfers to households, uh, you know, including the expanded unemployment insurance, uh, which was you know also in retrospect probably the most significant part of the CARES Act. So the limits, I mean, you know, one we mentioned is the Fed. It's not exactly clear yet, you know, how sharply the Fed's tight monetary policy will conflict with the Biden administration's investment approach. Uh, you know, partly because the impact of of interest rate increases on investment is still kind of poorly understood, you know, by economists. And so it's not clear how much of an effect it'll have, although at the margin, it'll certainly make investment less likely. Just as important, I think, is is this question of shareholder control. And, you know, there has to be a reason that the investment hasn't been happening on its own. And it stands to reason that a good part of the explanation is the preferences of the people who, you know, control investment decisions. And so then there's this question, if that's the case, is the Biden administration willing to actually confront the people who've been responsible for making the decision to underinvest? And I think, you know, I would like to be optimistic here, but the the showdown over the rail labor dispute, like, really gave a strong indication that if there was anything that, sh- that shareholders really, really strongly objected to, even something as basic as paid sick leave— all the rhetoric in the world about supply chain resiliency or like, you know, rebuilding the middle class didn't really count for anything. And Biden and Pelosi were sort of at pains uh, to deny this uh, basic right to workers. And so, you know, you don't want to generalize too much from one example, but I really saw that as a clear moment of a test. And I saw very little appetite for confronting uh, the people who control corporations. There's obviously a major danger in this revival of industrial policy policy being being tied up with the new Cold War with China, the, the greatest of many dangers, of course, being military conflict with China. But but I also want to ask, how does this emphasis on geopolitics limit where and how the center left is willing to intervene to expand productive capacity? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because, you know, you mentioned the CHIPS Act earlier, which is obviously, you know, targeted at sort of high-end electronics, which can be used, you know, and are used in advanced weapons systems. Uh, So that's like, you see it clearly there. With the Inflation Reduction Act, you also see some willingness to do this in, you know, the the sphere of of energy and the energy transition, which is also, we know, uh, something that, you know, American defense planners have identified as a, you know, a security relevant issue for many years now. Uh, it's interesting to look at other places that have contributed to the inflation uh, in part through their supply constraints, uh, like food. You know, grocery prices have been a huge driver of inflation. Uh, that's driven especially, I think, by the price of meat. You know, you see very little discussion aside from, you know, an occasional j- bit of job owning 
from the center left about doing anything about that. And I think, you know, food is obviously central to household budgets. It's been important in the, you know, change in the consumer price index. And there's not a lot of discussion of it. Insofar as I found any discussion of it, it's Matt Iglesias saying that these are bad jobs, which cannot be improved and which Americans won't do. So we need to increase immigrants um, who will do these jobs at low wages. Until we get to one billion Americans. <laughs> he doesn't mention whether he thinks that it's a good thing that these meatpacking plants use ICE as an anti-union tool. But knowing what he says about uh, safety standards in Bangladesh, I think we can guess that he's probably in favor of it. <laughs> So that's, you know, that's what the supply side approach is to the meatpacking plants. And I think it's, you know, contrasting that with the semiconductors is is pretty telling. Ahead of the midterm elections, it was widely believed that inflation above all else would doom congressional Democrats to this much dreaded historic red wave. But that wave, of course, failed to materialize. While I don't think that means that people aren't worried about inflation, because it's clear that many people are worried about inflation, it does strongly suggest that other things mattered more. And there's been a lot of attention, I think, rightly paid to Dobbs and the fact that people are generally put off by the right wing's culture war extremism. But were other forces, economic forces perhaps, also at work, like the fact that unemployment had not shot through the roof the way that it did after the 2008 crash? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it was an interesting test case of, you know, what's been called popularism, uh, you know, which was promoted uh, by people like David Shore and, and you know, Sean McElwee. And funded uh, by SBF. And funded by SBF, but what you also could find, you know, in the pages of Jacobin, you know, the idea that it's really, it's unfortunate uh, because it'll create unemployment for workers, but it's just a sort of fact that, you know, no one likes inflation, even workers. And I do think it's true that people don't like inflation, especially if you ask them a question like, do you like inflation? Uh, but like the revealed preference did suggest at the very least that it's not a complete disaster. You know, I, I haven't looked very closely at at exit polling, and I'm I'm sort of generally skeptical of attempts to overinterpret, you know, the elections. But I think we can say at the very least that it, you know, it makes it impossible to argue that, you know, inflation, even at really a, you know, a rate that we literally haven't seen since the 1980s, uh, is necessarily fatal uh, to politicians. Which is kind of interesting because that's sort of a return to what. Um, you know, right wing right wing political economists in the seventies had they would have just taken as axiomatic that voters kind of like inflation, and that's why they didn't. That's why these right wing people didn't like democracy. They thought that you know if it was just up to the voters and politicians, you'd end up you know with inflation forever. And so, in a way, it's sort of you know that view, which has a certain common sense you know to it, uh, maybe seems to make more sense than the idea that voters are going to punish people uh, for inflation. We touched on this a little already, but one area where the center-left center of gravity does not seem to have shifted at all is on the question of price controls. Why have price controls, which used to be fairly normal in American politics, been, why is it so, been so impossible, proven so impossible to re-normalize them in this moment of crisis? You know, I'm a, I'm a historian by training and my my field of study was the American military economy. And so I think it's really worth pointing out that 
many, if not most, of the American experiments with wage price policy have been in the context of a, of a military conflict. You know, so uh, there were a lot of op-eds uh, during the current inflation, you know, bringing up World War II and the Office of Price Administration as an example of what we could do. World War II is the most famous one, but there were also wage price controls during the Korean War. Uh, and then the Nixon uh, controls, which are often hilariously referred to as, you know, the first peacetime wage price controls in American history, of course, were imposed in 1971 when, you know, the U.S. was actively involved in in a military conflict in several different countries in, in Southeast Asia. And so I think, you know, there's this recurring dynamic in American economic history where people ask this question, we did this during wartime, why can't we do it during peacetime? There's no good reason for it, but it's often really hard to create a sort of moral equivalent of war. So you see that with, you know, with the war on poverty, with various calls to, you know, approach the Green New Deal with the urgency that we might approach, you know, uh, the Cold War or World War II. It seems to make sense, uh, but somehow there's no substitute for war uh, in actually making people, powerful people do things they would not have done otherwise, right? There's, you know, there's a question of where, where will the force come from? And if it's not going to come, you know, from, from the working class, from a sort of challenge from below within domestic society, it's often come uh, from a military conflict. The fact that we're in a kind of quasi-neo-Cold War with China, and that that has led to a kind of quasi-maybe, you know, version of uh, more economic intervention seems to bear out that pattern, right? We're in a kind of, we're in a fake war with China, and we have a kind of fake industrial policy and that applies to price controls too. I think the idea of controlling prices is is, is basically offensive, you know, to uh, American ideology about private power in the economy and like barring at least the the sort of credible threat of of physical danger. It's it's been hard to overcome the opposition. Tim Barker completed a PhD on the history of military Keynesianism in May 2022. He's currently working as a writer and researcher in New York. His essays and articles have appeared in publications including N Plus One, Phenomenal World, Descent, and Jacobin. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Tim. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, at the best of times, an increase in wages means only a quantitative reduction in the amount of unpaid labor the worker has to supply. This reduction can never go so far as to threaten the system itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theo Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. A big thanks to Anton Yeager for helping out with the prep for this interview. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about the pod, why you like it, why they'll like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.